glass, ice, pour. My wife got me the white one for Father's Day. Oh my gosh, right, I think I saw that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I saw that order come in. Yep. That's yep. so cool. I think the coolest part for me was seeing her name on the card saying, like, welcome to the movement. You know yeah. what I mean? Because I've got my own saying welcome to the movement. Yeah. And so now for my wife, it's going to have hers. That's awesome. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. I like sharing that That's with That's so cool, so. man. All right, friends, welcome to Whiskey and Rye. I am your host, Ryan Charles Brown, and joining me on the show today is Andre Henry. Andre, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. I, uh, I've been waiting to say those words for a while. Joining me on the show today is Andre Henry. Uh, so I'm very excited to talk with you. And, um, you know, I love that you're rocking your It Doesn't Have to Be This Way shirt because uh, that's a statement and a phrase that's used a lot around our house. Um, and every time, oh, wow. I, every time I wear the shirt out, people are always like, oh, thank you. You know? Oh, my gosh, really? Yeah, it's a wonderful reminder. Um, so I think it's really, it's really cool that you're always representing that. And thanks for the mug. Of course. Uh, yeah. It's great. Course. Um, so I'm really excited to have you on the show. Uh, I've been able to watch your career evolve over mm-hmm. the years, um, and it's been really a joy to watch you, you know, move forward in all the things that you do. And, um, you know, I'm sure you're someone who's asked a lot, you know, what is it that you do? <laughs> uh, and so I would love for you just as we kind of lay these things out to just kind of describe the work that you do and, and why you do it. Yeah. Sometimes I struggle to answer this question too. Um, but I would say like my, the thing that I'm doing in the world is really trying to build a movement mm. or be a part of the anti-racism movement that is ongoing. I mean, it, it starts yeah. way before me and it, hopefully it won't go too much longer after me. Hopefully it will become obsolete. That's right. Soon. Yeah, that's right. We don't, we don't want this movement to be like a generational thing. <laughs> So, so hopefully it won't go on too much longer. <laughs> hopefully we're nearing the finale. Yeah. 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 And, and so there are a few ways that I enter that work. And the first way is as an artist. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I kind of thought that I was moving away from that mm-hmm. when I, when I started speaking up more about racism and all that. But, um, I mean, and you know this, eventually I started dragging this boulder around Los Angeles to show the burden of racism on the black psyche. And as I started doing that, I realized that that was in itself, it was performance art. Mm -hmm. And so um, a mentor of of mine uh, who is also, he's a painter, he's an abstract painter. uh, He referred to it as like, you know, Andre exists in the world as an artist or he's confronting racism as an artist or something like that and it it really spoke to me in the sense that like that that mode of responding to a social injustice is actually not one that just anyone would have done like mm-hmm. that's the way that an artist <laughs> right responds to something is through creativity and through imagination and stuff so so i'd say i first entered that work as an artist but i also obviously i write and speak and um, educate yes yeah a lot of educating mm-hmm. you know a lot of educating mm-hmm. and and trying to do some type of organizing I, I shy away from saying I'm a community organizer because you know I'm not like going and knocking on doors and talking to people but you know I, I do bring people together you know for protests and things like that so so if I had to like bring all that down to a nut- nutshell usually I tell people I'm a writer and speaker and a singer-songwriter 
you know, who, who has a deep passion for racial justice and is trying to build this movement that tells people it doesn't have to be this way. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's really awesome how you, uh, because you brought up the boulder, which was a very tangible way for you to live out the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. It was a way for you to show a visual representation of the burden that you were saying that racism has on, on the psyche of black America. And I yeah. also remember you came out with this, um, you, you did a blazer and you wrote the names uh-huh. Uh, of all the victims who uh, up until that point had been victims yeah. of police uh, violence and brutality and murder. Um, and then now also you have expanded your, it doesn't have to be this way, yeah. um, this, this line. And um, well, the first thing I want to know is when are you going to have some joggers for me? Because I really <laughs> want some, it doesn't have to be this way joggers, but like, like that's say, it yeah, doesn't that, have to that, be this way yeah, on the like joggers, on the joggers <laughs> like down the leg. Oh, man, that would be great. Anyway, no, I think it's really uh, because I know you as a performer. That's how I first met you as a performer Mm -hmm. and as an artist. And, um, you know, I think when I when I heard you describe what you were talking about, how you entered as a performer, I think that's really the the most Andre way you could have entered in this Mm -hmm. space, because from what I know you as is someone who um, uses their it is now starting to even more so use their full body to yeah. to be their protest right yeah. and to be their to be their vocal so so in in thinking about how you carried that around mm-hmm. you know what were some of the stories that you had or any interactions you had with people maybe specifically men who were like hey man what are you doing you know why are you doing this yeah so i'll try to think of like the stories that are actually interesting <laughs> yeah Dude, people ask me as an Uber driver, tell me your most interesting story. And it's t- it's hard to come up with sometimes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, you know what's but, interesting is that as I think about it, like the stories that come up are from men entirely. Mm. I don't remember getting a lot of questions about what I was doing from women. Interesting. And the kind of the dumbest comments I got were from men too. Oh, I, I, you know, yeah. And I don't, I I don't expected that. I don't know how, what to make of that. I mean, if, if there is anything to make of it, but I remember one time I, I took the boulder to church. In fact, um, the, there came a point where I felt like I was only supposed to take it to church. So, so there were a, a few weeks where I only took it. I only carried the boulder on Sunday because you know, one of my mentors asked me, you know, who is this for? You know, who was the audience for this? And I really, you know, had to think about that and reflect on that. And the more that I reflected on it, it seemed like eventually that it needed to be taken to church. Around the same time that I was asking what was said at your ch- church about yeah. justice mm-hmm. this Sunday. Okay, so I take it to church, and this one guy sees me, and I'm also wearing the blazer that has the names of the police victims on it. <clears throat> and on the back of my blazer, it says, stop killing us, right? Um, and I remember the guy saying to me, he read the back of my, of my blazer, and he goes, jacket, he goes, uh, hmm, stop killing us with laughter, huh? And then he just laughs, mm. <laughs> which was the most odd yeah just the most odd thing to do like why would you just add with laughter to that and make a joke out of it um another guy at fuller when i was in seminary i think he was a professor oh that's not gonna sound good but whatever (laughs) i think he was a professor yeah and um he saw me dragging the boulder through the refectory cafeteria and he goes hey can i ride that (laughs) 
uh, no, mm-hmm. you cannot. Oh, you're you're messing up my fun, is what he says. Uh, so just like some oblivious, you yeah. know, people needing to, people feeling the need to say something, right? Right. Like, right. Because you know, you actually don't have to say anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And like, so maybe that is maybe that is kind of a male thing, though. Like we do right. tend to assume that like our opinion is warranted, that we need to say something or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't really remember many responses from women aside from a couple of women approaching me and saying, hey, can I ask you about this? Mm. And then having a a substantial conversation. Right. Yeah. yeah, Like a really long (laughs) conversation where they're actively listening and participating. Yeah. Yeah, Actually, you know, that was that was my experience. Yeah. You know, if there was any difference between the way that men and women were interacting with what I was doing, I I remember two very specific instances where one woman, she got it without talking to me and she came over to me to talk to me about it. Mm-hmm. Say, hey, can I ask you about this? And then was sharing her own experiences. And then there was another woman, a white woman, entirely clueless. I mean, this woman didn't know who the Black Panthers were. Mm. But also, can I ask you about this? And I start t- talking to her about it and she just is nodding and say, mm-hmm, okay. And would ask me another question, mm-hmm, okay. You know, so yeah. Wow. Well, I think there's there's a couple of things that I was, that I was thinking about as I was listening to you talk. But the thing that, I, that keeps coming up to me is that you started to do this exercise, this thing, because you just felt compelled to do it. It wasn't like you were trying to make people come up and talk to you, right? right. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? This was something that you you shared in a post that you felt very compelled to yeah. do this, right? So um, I think for for someone who is having to then explain to the general population why they're doing certain things, I, I feel like um, there's a there's a unique there's a unique characteristic of of the conversation when you are going to approach someone who is doing something like you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the way that you describe how the men approached you show how um, there's, a, there's a challenge that men have with radical behavior, especially mm-hmm. when radical behavior is trying to do something that is beneficial or that mm-hmm. is, it, it, that, that, that's actually helping people. And I say that because as I've shared with men in Uber about doing this work and having these conversations, I get dumb comments too. I get really, really? dumb comments. Yeah, I get really dumb comments. I get men who misinterpret what I'm saying and talk about how, oh, well, you know, the world is maybe overly feminized or hyperly feminized, huh. so men aren't able to talk about these things, so let's talk about that. And and I've found that it's really it's really disappointing for me to kind of continue doing this work uh-huh. when I hear these conversations from men who are uh-huh. like, I just don't think you get it. And I'm wondering, you know, I, I mean, I'm kind of, that's kind of a leading question because we're friends on social media and I can see it, but, <laughs> but it seems like I've seen you kind of share that sim- similar frustration of when you're trying to do this work and it just seems like you're getting nowhere. It yeah. just seems like for every maybe micro step forward you take, there's a lot of steps that come back as well. And so, um, yeah, yeah, there's something to the strength of, of moving into spaces mm-hmm. where you're talking about something extreme, where you're doing something extreme, like actually putting your body online and then allowing people to then interact with it. And I think 
one of the things that um, I would hope for you to talk about a little bit um, as we move forward is, be, like I said, you educate a lot of people. Yeah. So you're, you are educating people, but that's not your responsibility. Right. You know what I mean? That's not what yeah. you were put on this earth to do. Like you are doing this work because it's part of you and all uh -huh. these things, but it's not your responsibility. Right. You know? Um, so holding that tension and also, you know, having friends who are white and, and who are learning and going across, the, going through their own process you know, what are some of the things that you do um, to kind of keep yourself anchored in the work that you, because I think it'd be really easy to get kicked off. Mm -hmm, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? So like, what kind of like self-care things do you have as you're moving forward with some of these ideas, as you're having interactions with people who maybe like take from you in a way that you didn't expect? Like, how do you find your, yeah. like, how do you find like you get yourself back up and keep going? Yeah, you know, so I know that like because because we have a relationship, I know how passionate you are about really talking about how men for whom being a man, being masculine is important, like how we can do that better, mm -hmm. right? In a in a healthy way. And so even as we were just talking and we talk about like how different men kind of responded to what I was doing, I have to say that white men respond completely differently than black men to my work in general. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do have some struggles like within just black communities. Like there, there can be some fragmentation there. But for the most part, I'm surrounded by other black men that care about racism, also want to do something and are, and we're mutually supportive of one another. Right? Yeah. We share this, we share this um, common experience, this common struggle. And we can talk about how black men and black women or, you know, how in justice movements and stuff like that later. And I'm sure that we are. But white men in particular <laughs> have been like the most opposed to mm -hmm. what, I've, what I've been doing. I right? see it. Yeah. You know, I see it. I see it daily. Yeah. You know, and it's sure like white people have an issue with what I'm doing, but far more in my experience, the opposition has been the fiercest and the most frequent from white men. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because, okay, a few stories come to mind. One, I was walking through old Pasadena. This guy stops me, asks me about the boulder, and he starts trying to explain it to me. <laughs> explain your experience. He too. starts trying to explain yeah. what I'm doing to me, saying, well, you know, this can, this can apply to a bunch of different people and a bunch of different things. And I say, no, it doesn't actually. Now, on one level, he's actually correct, right? A lot of people do, in one way or another, carry different experiences of oppression that affect them. But on that boulder are written the names of black police victims. Mm -hmm. So he's not even really listening, not even really paying attention, not in detail. But he's explaining what I'm doing. He's trying to take this moment to teach me something. And... I say that there've been kind of two modes of like paternalism and condescension from white men where white men actually tried to come alongside me and say that they're an ally, but their allyship actually looks like them trying to teach me and coach me and tell me how to reach white people and to tell me, you know, like you said, like extreme behavior. What I thought about when you were talking about like when people do something extreme or radical behavior, I thought 
No, I think that white men have a very small box around what is appropriate and yeah. what, and that white men actually think that some things are radical that should just be regular, normal, decent human behavior, yep. right? Yep, that's good. And so for me to say the types of things that I do about race, like to say things like, you know, racism is baked into American society is an extreme idea for them. It's a radical idea for them. Mm-hmm. For me, it's history. Mm-hmm. You know? right. <laughs> like, it's facts. It's, it's a historical fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? right. Um, so, so, so that that is part of the the gender and race thing that I'm up against. And so, you know, honestly, I had I came to a point where I realized, like, that arguing with these men who even when they think they're allies notice i didn't even talk about the guys who were just oh, like yeah. i didn't even mention the guys who are just like well black people deserve what they're getting and it's not real i, I didn't even mention them mm-hmm. because we already know like those people come out the woodwork and it's it's frustrating and it's ang- angry but even the guys who think they get it don't really get it and then they come alongside you and they do the same kind of white white superiority behaviors the same <laughs> that was such a poor way to, to, to articulate that but their posture is yeah, superior right in the way that they're even approaching trying to be an ally that's also exhausting and so one thing that i've had to do is just i've had to draw some really strict boundaries about who i engage with and why and how yeah so i have deleted first off all of the overt racists that I know. I mute people on Twitter um, because <laughs> actually like, there are some people that it seems like they just follow me so that they can try to argue with me. Mm-hmm. And there is, this, there is this impulse that I notice about many white men where it's almost like they feel like they have the authority to tell you that you can't speak that way or that y- you have to justify what you're saying to them. Now I get that some people do have this I I get I get the idea of like you make a truth claim, the burden of proof is on you to validate or support that truth claim. Mm-hmm. But when we're in a public forum like Twitter and Facebook, it's also my prerogative who I want to engage with. Mm-hmm. So I can make a truth claim and you can say, well I don't believe it, you have to prove it, but that only works if I'm actually talking to you. Right. Right. Yeah. So like I'm not talking to you if you need this to be proven. Right. right? But anyway, so I block and mute people. That's one way I take care of myself. I take care of my mental health by saying, you know what? I'm I'm done with the phase of my work where I'm trying to persuade people that actually don't want to be persuaded. Yeah. You know, when I first started, I thought that was the work. Yeah, I was going to say that's an evolution because I've seen your work evolve yeah. and it's now becoming more... Yeah, I thought that online. was the work at first. Yeah, yeah. I thought the work was reaching out to these people who don't see and trying to help them understand. It's a good evangelist, man. And then I realized... <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then I realized that the people around me, and these were my loved ones, these were people I called family, these are some of my best friends, these are people I went to college with, that I really had deep love for, mm-hmm. that... They didn't see because it was hard to see. They didn't see because they actually didn't want to. Right. And so I started saying, well, what I'm not going to do is have the same conversations every single day. Like when I first started, every single day, 
I was starting from square one. Yep. Racism is a real thing. Now, if we ever want to do something about racism, we have to take as our ground of truth that racism is a real, a real thing. thing. Right. We can't get to doing anything about it if we can't even admit that it, it exists. Mm-hmm. I want to do something about it. Can I do something about it if I'm spending every single day arguing with people about its existence? I cannot. Mm-hmm. I use this analogy a lot. It's like, because we have this idea in America that like there is an inherent virtue in having people who have, who have deep disagreements like just talk about them, mm-hmm. right? But if you are an open heart surgeon, and you're about to operate on someone and you got someone in the room that's like what are you doing with that knife you're gonna cut that person open you get you're gonna kill him like okay this person doesn't understand open heart surgery and there's actually nothing virtuous about having them in the room while you're trying to perform this procedure having them slow down the work or undermine the work or say that the work is impossible all kind of stuff is actually nothing but a distraction yeah so one way i take care of myself is by eliminating having having to have that conversation it's frustrating for me it's maddening for me it doesn't move it forward it doesn't move the conversation forward for anyone else um another way that i try to take care of myself and i'll i'll try not to take as long as i did no 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 it's, the last it's, one. it's good um another way i try to take care of myself is by uh, making music you know yeah. um i started this as a performer and for a while i started feeling like there, you know, sometimes you feel like the work, the serious work of trying to be a part of social progress is speaking and writing and yep. studying. And, you know, you've got to be serious and do that. And so I, I moved away from being and from approaching it as an artist. I could never stop being an artist because even when I started dragging the rock, I wasn't doing a lot of performances and stuff like that necessarily. But. I mean, in my head, I thought, you know, I'm pushing music to the back burner. I'm going to focus on finishing seminary, da, 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 da. And then when I responded, I responded as an artist. But <laughs> I I didn't have it all integrated yeah. when I first started. I get that. Yeah. And so it's funny. It doesn't have to be this way. Like, it came from a song that I wrote. Like, mm-hmm. I, I decided, like, well, I need to put, like, I need to make some shirts and put a lyric on them or something like that. And when I wrote It Doesn't Have to Be This Way, I knew that that was the thing that I wanted to say. If I could summarize what I wanted to say to the world, it would be It Doesn't Have to Be This Way. Now, I'm not saying it's the greatest song I've ever written, but it's the, yeah. but it says what I needed it to say. And so I've come back to the point where I realized like, that the art, the creating part of it, the creation part of it, the creative part, the imaginative part, it's essential. Yeah. You know? It is. And on two levels, on, on one hand, we can't have a new world if we can't imagine a new world. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why people go along with things as they are is because they can't imagine it being any other way. Uh, the other part of that, too, is just when you're dealing with this stuff head on every day, you're looking at the headlines and the statistics about racial injustice, and you're also having to, you know, navigate largely a world that doesn't want to listen to you about it and people who even you know show up in your inbox and send you nasty comments online and all this other kind of stuff having a creative outlet is good for your mental health yeah oh when i'm playing the guitar you know practicing scales and all that kind of stuff i'm not thinking about all these comments and i'm not thinking about the headlines and all that kind of stuff i'm just i'm in a whole nother mode your brain is in a whole nother mode so that's one way 
And then the third way that I do is that I take care of myself is I invest in being a hopeful person, you know, that's key, you know, and it's like, I I say that I think a lot of people think of me as probably the most hopeful person that they know, you know, like people are like, I follow Andre on Twitter. I I sign up for his email list and all this kind of stuff because it makes me feel hopeful. Mm hmm. I'm borderline clinically depressed. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, literally, like, my therapist and I have talked about this. I, I'm a clinically, I'm borderline clinically depressed. But I also am a hopeful person. And I, the reason why is because I practice being a hopeful person. And I started practicing being a hopeful person because I was borderline critically depressed. You know? Crazy. So, so I realized, like, in 2017, it was about a year after I started like posting every day about racism and the boulder and the suit and all this other kind of stuff. And I was grieving every single day, like online. And you know, like I, people who've known me for a while were seeing me do this. My friend Paul sent me a book called hope in the dark. And when I, it's by Rebecca Solnit. And that book saved my life first off. Cause I was like the weight of, all that I was carrying was sapping the joy out of my life. And I thought I had to be very serious and I felt called to convey the pain of living in a world where so many people that were around me at the time didn't want to listen to the way that you were being affected by this larger political reality and learning more and more about how deep and pervasive the problem is was just a lot that book changed the way that I think about hope. Mm. And I had given up on going to church at the time because it wasn't helpful. I mean, no one was preaching anything that had to do with the things that I was weighing on. But oftentimes ignoring them just yeah. straight up. I and mean, you try just, to talk to people yeah, about this stuff yeah, and they tell you yeah. things like, well, we want yeah. to keep the main thing, the main thing, right. you know? Like, well, we were in the middle of a sermon series though. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're just, we're going to, you know, it's not the right time. Really. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, I'd given up on going to church. And so what I started doing was I went to brunch on Sunday. I'd wake up in the morning. I'd catch an Uber to brunch because I was going to drink. And I'd take that book, Hope in the Dark, and I would read. And that began, that's how I started practicing a discipline of making myself hopeful. So I would read that book. And then I got a few more that were specifically about hope. And I started reading about social change movements. Yeah. And I do those things to this day. I read things that are intentionally about hope by people who are doing the work of social change because people who are doing the work write about, write about hope very differently from those who don't. Mm-hmm. If you just Google quotes about hope, you're going to get a lot of sentimental bullshit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's like, for no reason whatsoever, everything's going to be all right. Right. You know, the night is darkest before the dawn, right? Right. Well, that means something very different from someone like Dr. King. Yes. Who is facing death every day of his career. Right. Than it does from, you know, just someone who feels that you need to be optimistic in that way. Well, also, how do you define dawn? You know what I mean? Like, you're looking for dawn. Is that the end of racism? Is that the end of oppression? Is that the end of whatever? So it's very... Right. So reading, so really investing in those things, reading those books and watching those documentaries and, you know, that are about social change movements and stuff like that. It really does like it does something for me 
And um, I also, I just try to unplug from time to time. Yeah. You know, just like I, <laughs> I, I take naps, <laughs> you know, yeah. I take Saturday or Sunday off. Like one of those days is just like, let me hang out with my partner. Let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's make some good food. And, and she's a really bubbly person. So like, yeah, I joke because like, so she comes over a bit and she usually is always comes bearing gifts. Oh, that's beautiful. And one of those gifts is champagne. Oh, <laughs> she's nice. that bubbly of a yeah, person. So that. it's like, that's, she's literally bringing the bubbly. Like literally. Yeah. I mean, and I don't think, I don't think she even realized that she was doing that, that she, she got this alcohol that completely matches her personality. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's fun. And so it's funny that like, oftentimes I open my fridge and there's champagne in there. <laughs> Yeah. And so like, you know, she comes over on the weekends and we we make brunch and we have mimosas and we unplug, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, it's all those things. Yeah. Sorry, one more thing. Um community is so important. Yeah. Well, you mentioned going back to church and then other things that you were doing. Yeah. So, yeah. Having people when we started doing a subversive liturgy at the Pasadena Police Station, which I know that people, you know, that are listening may not know, but um you know, one of my neighbors was killed by the police. And we started doing a, a protest prayer service at the doors of the police station there. And that was new community for me, mm-hmm. you know. And Howard Zinn writes about this in one of his essays, The, the Optimism of Uncertainty. And he says, surround, your, surround yourself with people who share your values. Yeah. Uh, the biblical version of that is don't forsake the assembly, right? Yeah. And people usually take that verse and say, that means you're supposed to be going to church. But think about who is writing and who they're writing to. Mm-hmm. They're ri- the writer is writing to Jews who have been scattered in this diaspora because of persecution under the Roman Empire. They're not writing about going to a building on Sunday morning and singing happy songs, sad song offering. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they're writing to a persecuted people about the value of being with other people who know your oppression and know the struggle that you have in society. And so being at that subversive litur- liturgy gathering just surrounded me with people who shared my values, who mm-hmm. cared about justice and connected spirituality to it. And that's one way that I take care of myself is by staying in touch with people who do that and yeah. talking with them and, you know, for us to pray together sometimes on the days that I believe in prayer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Well, I think, uh, I mean, all those things are great. And you and I even actually had an opportunity to, you know, get together in community yes, of course. times and just break out. And I think those things are really important. And, and I appreciate you sharing all of those details because I think anytime you're doing work that is very much a part of who you are, yeah. unplugging, doing all of those things, having, you know, special things that you look forward to having things that you do in the meantime and your off time that give you life is vital mm-hmm. in order to have long-term sustainability yeah. uh, because even after you are um, you know the even after you're one of the forefronters to, to eradicate racism and we're not <laughs> having and, and, you know and you're you're James Cone's age and you're sitting back you know in your large house with all of your books and all these things and you're like ah, I've done it you know it, it's gonna be still vital for for those people who are maintaining yeah the work you know what I mean and for sure I'm looking forward to moving into the point where we're maintaining we're not maintaining yet we're still um, yeah there's still a lot of things going on and um, I think the last thing that I'll just comment um, before we, you know, kind of pivot and talk a little bit more about movement stuff is um, Austin Channing Brown. Yeah. Amazing artist, Mm -hmm. uh, amazing writer, amazing woman. Um, She has a chapter in her book 
uh, I'm still here and, and the chapter is just simply titled white people are exhausting. <laughs> and, um, if I had money to buy a million copies and give those to everyone that I know, yeah, I would do that. But I, sure. I very, I wish I could just like photocopy and I'm sorry, Austin, I, I'll give you money through Venmo or something. But if I could photocopy just that chapter and mass distribute that chapter, yeah. it's one of the most important chapters of any book that I've read in the mm-hmm. last few years when thinking about white behavior, what has become white normative behavior and how it infringes so much on the lives of other people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you haven't read uh, I'm Still Here by Austin Channing Brown, do that. Borrow a copy, go to the library if you can't afford it, but read that chapter. Um, White people are exhausting because, spoiler alert, we are. (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler alert, we are. So so one thing I've been thinking about, I I was kind of thinking about questions that I wanted to ask you. And and I was thinking about this distinction between people who make change happen and create change and people who start movements. Yeah. I was trying to think to myself, is there a difference between those two things? Are they the same? Does one, is one a precursor to the other? And I thought, well, let me ask an expert (laughs) himself. So what do you, what do you think? Do you think there's a difference between someone who creates change and someone who creates movement? Yeah, I do actually. Um, so there are a couple there are a couple ways I want to answer this question. People are going to listen to this and be like, "Can he answer anything briefly?" <laughs> <laughs> There's always a couple ways I want to answer that question. Yeah, well, you have your own podcast on Hope and Hard Pills. You don't get to talk probably as That's much. Very you true. know what I mean? You're just interviewing people, <laughs> so true. this is your time to shine. I actually one of the compliments I've gotten about being an inver- interviewer is that I let my guests talk. Oh, I'm yeah. Which I'm, is what yeah, people say. They're yeah, like, "You're great, man!" Like you, you let your guests talk, and I'm mm-hmm. like, "Well, what else would I do?" <laughs> <laughs> They're my guests. <laughs> yeah. So, no, no, it's great. So, a couple things come to mind to that question. <clears throat> One is that you can be a change maker as an individual. You can be someone who holds a lot of institutional power, a decision maker, and you can make decisions about that institution that will change it. And in that way, you're changed. Is that a movement? No. But is it an instance of change? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's valid. It's a valid way of, of doing that. Now, the second way that I want to answer that question is to challenge America's doctrine of individualism. Mm-hmm. Because while it is true that one person can make a difference, it's kind of the only narrative that we have about change. We always talk about the power of one. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> there are some times... I think we're the power of one. Is, right, exactly. Like, the power of one could be a dictator, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. uh, something like that. Now, the power of one is valid. Do... I was about to do a Game of Thrones reference, but I'm not going to go there. I'm not even going to do it. Yeah. It's still relevant. There probably will be a Game of Thrones reference before this conversation yeah, is over great. because I've watched the series like five times. I'll miss it. I've watched six <laughs> episodes. I didn't get into it. It's hard, man. Yeah. It, I, it really is. Yeah. I gave it six episodes and I gave up. I'm a quitter. It's hard. Yeah. It's a good thing to quit on, I guess. Yeah. If all things. But anyway. <laughs> so, but okay. So this narrative of the power of one, sometimes... Is a, is a disadvantage to us. And in some ways, is keeping us from really grappling with the power of the many, mm-hmm. which is like the core of what I'm doing. It's trying to help people understand 
what we can accomplish through collective action. So the difference between a change maker and a movement is that a movement involves people, a lot more people. It involves uh, a concerted effort of a group of people that are pursuing change together. And what you have in a movement like that is you're actually able to manage the way that leaders use their power when you have a bunch of people that are working in concert together. So one of my favorite quotes about this comes from Gene Sharp. He's an iconic movement scholar. He wrote a book called From Dictatorship to Democracy. And that book has been used all over the world throughout history to topple totalitarian regimes Mm. and to bring about change. And he's got students that have also done the same, like Sergei Popovich, who's still living. He's in Serbia. And Bob Helvey, who is, um, he's in the States. Anyway, Gene Sharp. The quote is, obedience is at the heart of political power. Mm. By themselves, rulers cannot collect taxes and repair roads and direct traffic and manage ports and print money and milk cows all at the same time. People provide those services to the ruler through institutions and organizations that we are a part of. Which means that nothing is done from the top down, actually. Mm. It's not one person. It's not the CEO or the president or the attorney general or the district attorney that's doing all these things by themselves. It's our willingness to cooperate with the way that they're running things that allows the status quo to be what it is. And because the status quo depends on our mass participation or our mass cooperation, it can be changed through our mass non-cooperation. Mm-hmm. So that's the difference between a movement. Yeah. Is that one person who goes and spray paints concentration camp on a detention center or stands in front of a tank or something like that, not always going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. But if you have 12 million Americans that say, we're not banking with these institutions because they support the mass incarceration system and the mass deportation system. Okay, now you've got a bunch of banking institutions that are paying attention. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you have created this new movement called Hope and Hard Pills, Mm -hmm. which is um, a very gracious uh, entry point (laughs) into the anti-racist movement because it's very very hopeful. Um, And so... One of the things that I noticed with the, the emails and all this stuff is that you are, you're calling on people to bring their individual skills and talents right. yes. to certain things. And so I think when, you, uh, when you're thinking about change, I also think that there's more than one way to go about things, right? Absolutely. And I think there's power, there's power in community. Mm-hmm. So gathering folks together who are like-minded, um, that's where I think you really start to see things happen. And, and, and I think the important thing to think about is this idea of decentralized leadership uh-huh. in terms of movements, right? Mm-hmm, you know, so mm-hmm. even though you might be the person to say like, hey, I'm the one like leading this thing, mm-hmm. there are other ways yeah. that you need to be able to distribute that power. Absolutely. And I think that's really, that's a part of the movement thing that I think is, yeah, for sure. you know, is, is really uh, an important component to that because otherwise it just becomes about one person kind of calling the shots, right. moving one thing forward. There's some real dangers with like, yeah. okay, so this is a part of our individualism story, right? So mm-hmm. 
we say Dr. King changed mm-hmm. America. Right. Dr. King did not change America by himself. Right. You know, there's there are literally millions of Americans that participated in that movement mm-hmm. and lots of other leaders that were alongside him. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing when we do this kind of great man history, great man social movement idea, is one, movements like that that are very easy to decapitate. So one Mm -hmm. thing I've been thinking about is like with the SCLC and the civil rights movement, for for instance, King ended up wielding a lot of power in that organization. So much so that it seems that when he was assassinated, that the SCLC kind of fell out Mm -hmm. of its capacity to contribute to the movement in, a, in the way that it did before. So also on that note, you have the nonviolent movement in Iran in the 80s, I believe it was, where it gained a lot of capacity. There were a lot of people participating, but the power was kind of consolidated behind this one leader. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the rare occasions where a nonviolent movement actually led to another dictatorship. Mm. So we have to be careful yeah. about the way that we talk about and use power. At the same time, we do need leaders. We need mm-hmm. leadership. And so I love how like Black Lives Matter has talked about leadership because they talk about it's not leaderless, it's leaderful. Mm-hmm. So there, there are lots of leaders. And that's definitely the kind of movement that we need. Yeah. I, uh, I, like, I think this is a good time to think about like women in leadership mm-hmm. because I think we live in a time where we're seeing... Um, a lot of powerful women come into leadership and I think it's really great and I'd be interested in your opinion I have this opinion that women are more responsible or have a tendency to be more responsible with holding power because they distribute it a lot better with than men do mm. I think men tend to hold on to power for themselves to whereas yeah. women are more interested in collaboration and distributing power yeah. I, I, have you noticed that at all in the work that you're doing have you does that sound ring true to you I don't know. I don't know if I could comment like necessarily on how women distribute power, but I will say that when you are a part of an oppressed group, yeah, it changes your sensibility oftentimes yeah. about the way that you go about doing things. And so when we look at the ways that men and women socially have been, you know, put in this hierarchy, Black women, especially, mm-hmm. have felt the brunt of all these different oppressions, right? Yeah. I think this is what Kimberly Crenshaw would talk about when she says intersectionality, right? right. Like, they are both affected by being black and being uh, female. Mm-hmm. So naturally, if you not only know how the racial hierarchy has oppressed and violated and all these other things you but you also know how the patriarchal system does that to you as well well then you as a leader as an organizer are probably going to try to make sure that your movement is not also like operating along those lines and so in some ways i've thought about it as myself as a black man i've thought about so those encounters we talked about with white men earlier i've thought about the fact that or the analogy of like it's it's a blind spot for them yeah. The thing that they cannot see is the thing that is in my face. Right. 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 I'm looking right at it. I think that black women are doing that for for black men, white men, white women and saying, 
like because of your position, because of your privilege, there are things that you just don't see, right? You're yeah. not seeing. And I think that's why it's important to listen to them. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, I want to talk a little bit about hope and hard pills. I dropped, I yeah. dropped, that, I dropped that a little bit, but I want to talk a little bit about that. So, yeah. um, you know, like I said, I've watched your work evolve. Yeah. It's, it's been on a very beautiful arc. And I think this is just a, a lovely, um, I don't want to, I don't know what to call it. A, a <laughs> moment, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. A spot, a, a, a place on your journey. Yeah. Um, so, you know, how, how did it come about? What, where did, where did this, this idea of hope and hard pills, you know, yeah. it's a juxtaposition, right? It's hope, but then it's also, yeah. it's hard. It's hard things to do. For sure. so, so, you know, how, how did, how did that come about? And yeah. how is that, how is that you? Yeah. Cause it's very you. <laughs> <laughs> it's very you. Well, so first of all, the email list came out of a writing assignment. Okay. So I, I do try to invest in my, my own self-education. And so I was taking this course on blogging and writing with Jeff Goins. Mm. And he said, you need to start an email list. And I procrastinated on writing this, on doing this email list. First off, I already had one. I had yeah. an email list for music. I didn't have one for myself as a writer. And the idea of just doing like an email list that was just sending the blog that I wrote out it's just not how I do things, you know. Yeah. I, I tend to overdo things, right? right so, yeah. so this idea came to me one day when I saw the hard pills meme. Like, a friend of mine created a hard hard pills meme for me that was customized, but oh, I saw right, the original right. hard p- yeah. pills meme, and I thought of the the cliche that people say, "Oh, we're we're all we're, there's only one race, the human race." Mm, mm-hmm. And I was like, but human is not a race. It's a species. Right? Human is not a race at all. <laughs> and so that was my first heart feel. I, yeah, wrote, yeah. I wrote, human is not a race. Stop saying that shit. <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought, yo, I need to do a lot of these about racism because yeah. it's funny, you know, and it's, it's a way to educate that is, it's fun for me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's succinct. That's where the hard pill idea came from. And I can't remember why I juxtaposed those things to make the email list, but I knew that I wanted to do the hard pill thing. And I can't remember why why I did hope. I think just hope has just been important to me. So like you said, it's very You said me. you're a hopeful person. You said you're yeah, a hopeful person. I am so a hopeful I, person. You know, I mean, I, that's where I see it coming from. Exactly. So... I think that a, like an email list that was just like, you know, beating you over the head, that's not a fun, that's not a fun thing no. to receive. But that's not you either. You know what it is? Now I know. I realized that social change can't happen without hope mm. because I started the, the list after like this year. So I started reading about social change intention, intentionally years ago but in 2018 i started a very specific reading project so i've been trying to figure out how i can do phd level work without actually getting a phd that's let me know how that goes man. you know yeah like i've been literally asking different professors like how many books do i have to read on this topic to be (laughs) considered that i know what i'm talking about so 
I started the year, and this is what you do in a PhD program, like you have a question that you're pursuing. I had a few questions. One of my questions was, who were Dr. King's philosophical influences? Mm. Where did his ideas come from? The other question that I had was, how did apartheid end in South Africa? And then the other question was, how did Hitler, how was Hitler able to pull off what he did in Germany? Those are my three questions. So 2018, I spent a lot of time on apartheid and Dr. King's influences. So I started with Henry David Thoreau, his essay, Civil Disobedience. Mm. And I read from there all the way down into the present. Like I've started reading from there up to Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter. Wow. <laughs> so just book after book after book <laughs> and documentary after documentary and even like taking a Harvard class on leading nonviolent movements. Like I just, and the thing that I came out, I mean, there were many things that, that came out of that, but there was this through line from that year that I did that project to the very first day that I started reading mm. about social change. The first time I encountered this idea was the idea of what the author, Doug McAdam, he's a sociology professor at Stanford. Mm -hmm. What he talks about is cognitions, the way that we think. And he talks about this concept called cognitive liberation. It has two parts. Cognitive liberation is when people understand that first, the situation they're in is unjust and changeable. Mm. That's hope. Yeah. That's <laughs> right. Hope. Yeah. So I really started. So from that day years ago up to that year long project where I was reading, 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 the thing that stood out to me was that, yes, anger mo motivates us. Anger gets us moving. Anger makes us aware. Anger tells us of the urgency and the need to start doing it. <clears throat> but hope sustains. Yeah. And more people are going to be moved by the possibility that things could be different right. than by being upset. It's actually hard to make people upset about something that you are upset about, right? Oh, like, yeah, yeah. Like, you can piss people off, but that's not the same thing as getting right. them to share your anger mm -hmm. about racism mm -hmm. or male supremacy or something like that. Especially the ones that are perpetrating it. Right. <laughs> it's hard to get them angry about right. But... The possibility of shutting down a concentration camp. Isn't that exciting? Yeah. When you say to someone, which I actually do text people sometimes, hey, you want to shut down a concentration camp? Right, yeah. Who says no to that invitation? Right. Because there's, there's a vision, there's imagination about it that says, oh my gosh, I could be a part of doing something like that. I don't want to watch these kids be abused by, by the uh, Border Patrol and mm -hmm. ICE agents and all that kind of stuff. That's the stuff that moves people forward. And so that's why hope and hard pills ended up being juxtaposed together because yeah. this email list is going to be about social change. It was so that I could share all the things that I've been reading yeah. and boil it down to these little bite-sized chunks and give people the thing that makes me hopeful, the thing that keeps me going, and to share with them that we have that power to change the world if we work together. So that was, that's what the list was about. So I knew the list was about hope. Yeah. But the thing about it is like we talked about a few minutes ago was saying that when you Google quotes about hope, you get all of this sentimental bullshit. It's, empty. it's 
it's delusion, right? Hope has to have reasons, right? It has to have some ground. There has to be some reason that you're hopeful. And hope that doesn't look at the facts, the ugly truth. It's thin. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that it had to also have like the dirty truth about racism and anti-racist work and social change. Like without these two things together, if it were just all kind of like, hey, we can do it, that wouldn't be an honest Mm -hmm. project. Right. And if it were just all like, this is the problem, this is the problem, this is the problem, this is the problem, then people can't move forward on it. And so that's how it came to be both. Yeah. And like you said, it it feels like me. It does. Yeah. It feels very much like I want to be honest. I want to be clear. And I don't want to offend anyone, but I don't mind (laughs) offending anyone. But at the same time, some people, their work is pointing to the problem. And that's it. Just saying this is what's wrong. And that was that was what my work was at the beginning. Mm -hmm. But it's just not anymore. You know, like hope is such an essential thing to what I'm doing that those things, it just feels like it goes together. So, Yeah. yeah. No, that's beautiful. And I think there's a natural evolution to as you as you do things. And I think when you're passionate about something like you're passionate about the work that you're doing, I'm passionate about dismantling toxic masculinity. Yeah, we get you know, you have a tendency to get kind of like wrapped up in what you're doing and you get wrapped up in details and you get wrapped up in the mission, you get wrapped up in a lot of things. But I think it's really important just to take a step back and realizing that change is happening. The wheels of change move slowly. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're right. Hope is an essential. If you don't believe or hope or imagine that the work you're doing is actually going to make a difference, then um, it takes a special person to keep keep going and keep moving. So I think it's vital to have that I think imagination is really important which I think you being an artist probably helps fuel that a little bit well yeah I realize as I'm doing the work that a lot of the people that have changed the world have either been inspired by art to -hmm. do their work or they've been artists themselves Mm -hmm. you know it's like one of my one of the books that changed my life like it really helped me understand kind of like how movements are built was Serge Popovich's um blueprint for revolution Serja was a bass player in a college band and the way now first off what you need to know about Serja is that he gathered his 10 friends his 10 Serbian college student friends and built a movement of 70,000 Serbians opposing the dictatorship of Slobodan Milosevic and they won but he never thought he would be an activist because he thought that activism was boring and he thought that political action was boring. But one day he saw a band careen through this public square in Serbia and they were playing this music with political overtones. And the band was singing this song that said, if we're too busy fighting the war, if we're always fighting, how we find time to have sex? And I, I just censored what, what yeah, right, yeah, <laughs> how, right, yeah. how we find time to have sex. And that moment inspired Serja to understand that trying to confront corrupt power and oppression could be fun. Mm. And so they incorporated humor into their entire movement. How could they create a movement that was the coolest thing to do in town? Wow. How could they create a movement that was the most fun thing that a young Serbian could participate in? 
And that also in, ignited my imagination right. about doing this stuff. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I'm in the season right now where I'm trying to figure out how to make this conversation a little bit more palatable because I think my first the first few episodes and things that I've come out with it's been it's been like a smack in the face mm. you know what I mean it's like toxic masculinity needs to be eradicated like this is this Word. is serious you know what I mean Word. Like, and men like we need to get better we need to we need to get down to it but there is a there is a component of hope that I think is missing a little bit yeah. um and and I I I, I hope that the more that I talk about it with people like yourself who yeah. are doing very difficult day-to-day work, yeah. um, I hope that I'm able to convey that there is hope and joy to be found in that everyday work. Mm-hmm. You know, I I find hope and joy um, in doing the things that I do. Now, there are moments where I watch documentaries, like I'm watching the family documentary right now Ooh, on God, Netflix, yeah. and I'm mm-hmm. like, this is hard, you know what I mean? And I think for me, a long, a long, I spent a long time on the sidelines, um, sort of just watching and commentating because I thought that there wasn't a space for me yeah. in the toxic masculinity, in the anti-racist, mm-hmm. in the, you know, in that conversation. But what I realized is there's space for everybody, right? Especially when you're thinking about how you can creatively enter into that space. Yeah. So for me in thinking about, you know, my whole thing started, this whole podcast and idea came about because I was having a son and I wanted him to have Mm. a a brighter future. And I wanted him to understand his role as a man, you know? Um, and so that sparked me to do this. So, you know, while this conversation is hard, sometimes it's so much fun for me to think about my son being able to live in a world that is hopefully better because of these conversations that I'm having. And I think I feel the same when I listen to your conversations and when I read your work that the world for my son is going to be better because of the work that you're doing. And I think that's, that's for me where a lot of the joy, I find a lot of joy. Yeah. We need, we need a compelling vision of of what the world could be. Mm -hmm. Like that is the thing that is going to move millions of people Mm -hmm. To participate in it mm-hmm. you know we need to know about the damage that our participation is doing mm-hmm. to different communities and the planet and to other people like we need that information mm-hmm. but like like i said before you know it's it takes a rare kind of person to be moved by that mm-hmm. you know yeah and there are people who are moved by that alone people mm-hmm. who say oh my gosh like i don't I don't want to be complicit in this and, right. and they pursue change. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to always talk about Gene Sharp because he's amazing yeah. and everyone yes. should read his work. Yes. But um, he has a treatise called making the abolition of war, a realistic goal. Now, just the title of that. Yeah. It's exciting. Mm-hmm. He could have written a, a treatise or essay and the title could be war is hell which is true mm-hmm. but one of those titles is compelling right i think you know right. in a different way not right. the, not that the other one is not but one is compelling in a different way and so sharp's imagination mm-hmm. in that essay is explaining civil disobedience civil resistance and he's imagining and explaining how a populace could actually ward off a foreign invasion. 
without weapons. <laughs> wow. That is the kind of imagination that I think that we need. Yep. Because again, and his and his conclusion is that the reason why we still have war is because people, the first thing people will say is, well, what else are we going to do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And that's a huge part of the problem is that when we talk about racism and the systems and structures of racism, like the like policing right mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. you know, if you say, well, we need to abolish the police. People are going to say, well, well, how are we going to handle crime? Right. Right. Yeah. How are we going to handle crime without the police? Well, that's why we need the imagination to imagine these other institutions. Yes. Where we can imagine settling disputes and differences without calling on the state. Yeah. You know, like people are having arguments with their spouse or something like that. And then they say, I need to call an armed agent of the state to come and intervene between us. Right. And then they act surprised when somebody gets shot. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's right. like, right. you know, well, we need the imagination, you know, like our prison system that if you really think about it, we have a system in our country that systematically takes away people's human rights, mm-hmm. the right to move about freely and, we're practicing solitary confinement and all these kinds of all of these practices that actually don't reduce crime or rehabilitate the individual. They're making people worse. I don't know if you read that article recently, but they, they put this mentally um, ill man in solitary confinement and he lost the ability to talk. Who does that help? Right. It doesn't help him. And did anybody outside of that prison benefit from that man losing the ability to talk? No. And did he learn a lesson? Like, what are you trying to teach him? Exactly. So we have this punitive system that capitalizes on people's pain. And the reason that we're going about it, the reason that we continue in it is because we can't or we haven't as a country imagined another way to do it. Mm -hmm. Because if you say we shouldn't, we shouldn't do this anymore. It doesn't work. What is the first thing people are going to say? Well, what else are we going to do? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, then you come up with a solution then. You figure <laughs> you it know? out. It's like, well, no. So that's what I'm saying. Like we, yeah. we need these we need these compelling visions. We need this imagination. We need and that's and that's a part of where hope comes from too is that understanding mm-hmm. that it doesn't have to be this way. <laughs> yes. It could be some other way. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we have the power to bring it about. Yeah. And it, that, that other way is sitting in the mind of someone yes. or several people yeah. or a collective. Mm-hmm. And there just needs to be the spark, the igniter. And that's where I think the work that you do, and I hope it's okay that I parallel it with the work that I do. Because I do. I, <laughs> I, see us as, I see us as joggers, you know, running in tandem. Uh, but I think that's where I have hope for people who are just like me who were once on the sidelines, you know, Mm. uh, a lot of, a lot of my audience, uh, a lot of people that I feel compelled to talk to are people who are half of them are active and I think half of them are passive, Uh you know? And Uh so I think I really, I really have a heart for those folks who are passive right now, who are watching, who are thinking things, who are wondering to themselves, gosh, does it have to be this way? Right. 
I I really want to encourage, I think we're in an important time right now to really ignite people who are on the sidelines watching, taking a passive role to really get them involved, yes. to get them involved in the way that's uniquely them. So they don't have to start an email list oh, like you do. Yes. They don't have to start a sweet clothing line like you did. <laughs> they don't have to write songs or start a podcast or whatever. But right. But what they can do is they can read some Gene Sharp and have like a book group in their yeah, house, for you sure. know, or they can um, read certain things and then go to their social media profile and say, hey, this is some things that I'm learning and I want to share this with my with yeah. my people. You know what I mean? Things like that. Well, it's so important because, first off, we need millions of people. Mm-hmm. We need millions of people. Mm-hmm. And all of those millions of people can't be doing the same thing. Right. You know, and. I've been talking about this a bit, like in different conversations of uh, the movement needs bookworms. It needs babysitters. It Mm -hmm. needs grandparents. It needs uh, event planners. It needs program managers, uh, project managers. You know, it needs all of these different kinds of people to perform all these different functions. You know, if you're an event planner, uh, you can talk to someone who someone like me who is not a detail oriented person (laughs) and say, okay, Andre wants to do this campaign where we all show up at the mayor's house, (laughs) you know, like we get 20,000 people to surround the mayor's house and refuse to move. And we show up with like, you know, donuts and orange soda and those kind of stuff for the police. Right. Mm -hmm. So when the police come to abuse us, we're like, I mean, you could beat me up or you could or have you this could donut. Have the, you could have this cherry Danish. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Like, all right. So I want to do this, right? Yeah. Do you know how much planning has to go into that? Yeah, right. Tons. Who is going to plan that? Me? Yeah. You don't want me to plan that. Right. Tons of stuff is going to be forgotten. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is where, you know, someone who is detail oriented, they're like, well, I plan weddings and I plan all this kind of stuff. Like, I know. Like, I know. I see all these things that Andre hasn't even thought of. Mm-hmm. Right. Actually, I may not even need to be in the room when we're planning the thing. Mm-hmm. My role might be, okay, we need someone to talk to the press. Andre's very long-winded and he's articulate. That's my role. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But people think that like that's the most important role. That's just one part of it, you mm-hmm. know? You need people who are, you know, looking at the logistics. You need someone you need the person who's read more than I and understands the political landscape more than I to even before we start planning anything to sit down with another group of people who are, you know, research oriented and all that kind of stuff to say, okay, first off, what kind of problem are we dealing with? Mm-hmm. Is this the decision maker? Is the mayor the person that you need to put the pressure on? Is it a political problem that we're dealing with? What if it's an economic thing? Like, mm-hmm. what if that strategy is all wrong? What if the thing that we need to be doing is, you know, boycotting this? boycotting exactly. Amazon or something like that. Exactly. So you see how like all these different people are working together. My friend Melissa tells a story about she has a neighbor who she babysits people's kids when they go out to protest. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a ministry right there. And I'm like, yeah, y'all don't even understand yeah. how like how crucial. Yeah. For her, for that person who does that, she may think, man, I really wish that I could go out there and block traffic. I feel I feel guilty. I feel bad. Mm-hmm. That I'm not like marching and, you know, I don't have time to go and do that. I don't know that. But I, I know people who are doing a lot and doing small, crucial things that they don't realize. So I could imagine someone in that mm-hmm. position saying, I feel like what I'm doing is not really that much. But it is, but it is. because 
she's watching these people's kids, which means that those people who need to go block traffic can go block traffic. Mm-hmm. You know, we need the we need the senior citizens who don't have the energy or the time, you know, or, or the stamina to go and you know march and all that kind of stuff. We need them to call the police station nonstop when they mm-hmm. arrest the activists and say, "Hey, what are you doing with mm-hmm. Alex? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. when are you going to release them? Mm-hmm. You know." And we need we need the kids to play on the seesaw that that someone builds on the border wall. Yes. Because you know, if it were a bunch of adults going down there, they'd be shooting at them. Right. You're not going to shoot at a bunch of kids. Right. You know, like so so people have there's so many different types of people that have a role to play. Mm-hmm. And once we understand that thing of it's about the collective, it's about the millions, it's about the un the people whose names we'll never know from the civil rights movement. Right that decided that they weren't going to take the bus or that they were going to buy an extra pair of shoes for people who were walking to work Mm -hmm. or that they were going to participate in the carpool that got people there. Like that's the movement. The movement actually begins with us learning to take care of each other. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. It just is what it is. Yeah. And so like people do have, people have vital roles to play and they don't even realize it. Yeah, I agree. And like, we just forget that we're all humans. You know what I mean? And like the humanity of everything. I, I see, you know, in driving for Uber, I see beautiful pieces of of humanity being restored, you know, yeah. every day and people just seeing other people. And I just, I hear a lot of the stories of people just taking small roles to move things forward. And right. I'm just like, you know, we're in a, we're in a point right now where um, the smallest, the, the smallest effort put towards something like anti-racism or dismantling toxic masculinity the smallest effort yields the largest reward sometimes you know what i mean like a larger reward than you can really imagine so most of us are going to play a supportive role Mm -hmm. that's that's most of our role is supportive right you know and so when people we just we just took on a, a volunteer editor for hope and hard pills and she told me she said i just want you to know that this means a lot to me wow. because I have four kids and I can't always go out and march and I can't always lead mm-hmm. the protest, which she did, by the mm-hmm. way. She organized the Lights for Liberty rally wow. against the concentration concentration camp system a couple months ago, I think that was. Um, so she, it's not that she can never do it, but I mean, a single Limited. mom with four kids, mm-hmm. you know, can't mm-hmm. do that all the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And so she said, I've been looking for my place in this movement and this is my chance to do it and i said i'm so glad that you understand that yeah because some people think oh well i'm just supporting andre but no here's a deal about capacity mm-hmm. i can only do so many of the tasks that actually need to be done to do mm-hmm. the work that i'm doing mm-hmm. i have to have people that are working with me mm-hmm. you know and so people look at it and they see my face but they don't realize you know there's a there's a slack workspace with 11 people in it mm-hmm. you know that are all making this thing happen you know, so I said, I'm, I'm so glad that you understand yeah. that you are playing a vital role <laughs> right. in what in the work that, sure, I might have had the vision for because that's my role. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we didn't even talk about how I ended up doing the boulder, but I saw it. You right. know, yeah, like I saw it in my imagination. Right. You know, that's my role, mm-hmm. you know, but it's also my role as a leader to create space for people to understand their power and to participate, to give people opportunities mm-hmm. to do that. And so I think that people just need to understand that most of us are going to play a supportive role and to do it. 
you know, do it. <laughs> when you when you join uh, the Patreon for Whiskey and Rye, like you are not just supporting Ryan. You are a part of the work that is exactly. being done, right. you know, exactly. like without your participation, it can't be done at that capacity that it's being done. And so, yeah, people just need to know you're important. Yeah. Thanks for the plug, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> that was very kind of you. But no, you're exactly right. And I, and I want to say, like, as someone who's followed your work, like whiskey and rye wouldn't be here. Well, yeah, I mean, it. I don't want to say it wouldn't be here, but it, whiskey and rye took shape because of what you've done Hmm. Uh, because of the way that you just say like i'm gonna step into a space you know what i mean and like the way that you challenge people to like learn for themselves you know what i mean um you're so gracious with your time and you'll take time and educate people (laughs) you're so gracious my friend um and and i'm proud of you for putting up boundaries because i see you have more boundaries with it now and i'm proud of you for that but you're still incredibly gracious with your time um and because of that because of your challenge I moved from the sidelines. Hmm. I moved from the sidelines and whiskey and rye was me putting skin in the game. Yeah. You know, whiskey and rye. I started with a social justice podcast called the mission podcast. Yeah. Um, and that was, that was kind of a mirror of the work that you were doing. You know hmm. what I mean? It really was, was inspired a lot by the work that you were doing. But then the more I followed your work and the more I started to think about myself, the more I realized I'm trying to be something that I'm not. Hmm. And what I really want to be is more whiskey and rye. And yeah. so, it's because of the work that you're doing that I was challenged and in, in moved into doing something like this. So, so I, I, I want you to know that, that, that what you're doing is working, you know, it's, it's working, <laughs> right? Like the hope and hard pills, like I'm a part of that email list. And yeah. I'm, I'm grateful for, I'm grateful for that. It's, you know, it's an email that I, that I make sure that I read every single time that it's sent through. Um, but also like, it didn't stop there for me. It wasn't mm. just like, cool, I'm going to read this email from Andre every single week. And that's going to be the thing that I do. It's going to be like, no, I'm going to read this email from Andre and then I'm going to take a piece of it and I'm going to put it into action in my yeah. own life, either through whiskey and rye or through a conversation with my wife or something that I teach my son yeah. or something even that I just do for myself that That's week. That's so awesome. I, that means a lot to me on a couple levels. First off, like, okay, so I have a problem realizing when stuff is a big deal. Mm. I, also, I actually don't, it doesn't register for me. Mm-hmm. I'm learning this about myself lately. Yeah. Yeah. Partly because I did... I was on this panel with Congressman Adam Schiff the other day, <laughs> and I didn't tell anybody. Like, right, right. <laughs> and yeah. so, like, even my partner, like, when she found out that I was going to be on this panel, she was like, well, I'm coming. And I was yeah. like, but you have plans on Monday. Like, yeah. don't cancel your plans to come and be at something that I'm speaking at. Right. And she was like, Andre, it's a big deal. <laughs> right. And then, yeah. and then she told my other friends, and they were like, Andre, how come you did not tell us that you're doing <laughs> And so I, I have an issue recognizing this stuff is a big deal. And so like, I'm getting a bit choked up when I talk about this, like when I realize that people view me as a leader and someone that they look up to. And some people have even been like posting online about, oh, like my mentor said this or whatever, that we're not even like, we don't even have a close relationship, but they've adopted me as a mentor which is something that I, I've done with plenty of people. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, I'll never be close to that person, but I admire them. I consider them a mentor. Like that some people are doing that with me. Like it just means a, a ton to me to hear those kinds of stories where I asked this the other day, actually on Instagram too. I said, I saw, yeah. what are y'all doing with yeah, this I information? Because, you know, like I do this in my spare time because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. 
Um, and so sometimes when you're doing stuff, you know, in your spare time because it's your passion, it it can it can be exhausting, it can be tiring. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, well, what are people really doing with this? So someone told me that they've started a small group where they talk about justice and and faith. Uh, someone else, they posted it doesn't have to be this way as their statement of the year in their classroom. So it's in their wh- classroom and they talk to their kids about it. And I saw that one. One person they talked to their kids yeah, about Yeah, because one of their kids goes, why can't he be president? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, so this stuff means so much to me to hear, you know, about the impact that you're making. But on the other on the other side of it, and this is what a lot of people don't know, is that so many people told me in the beginning what you're doing is not helping Mm -hmm. what you're doing is not making a difference now i know that what they were saying because who can they speak for right did they Mm -hmm. do a sociological study yeah did they put in did they put in any research to determine the impact that i'm having no what they were saying was what you're doing is not making a difference for me i am against you but it didn't register that way, you know, and I kept going and, you know, I will always keep going. I wasn't discouraged by them saying it, but I mean, it's frustrating. So mm-hmm. when people do tell you, like, not only is it making a difference, but this is how it's made a difference for me. Like, that means a, a, a lot for me. Yeah. Well, uh, it's it, it rings true for me on many levels, both personally and professionally. Um, you know, I feel grateful the fact that I've been able to you know, move past just kind of like a working relationship. And now we've actually developed a friendship. Yeah, for sure. And uh, that's something that I hold near and dear to my heart. So I'm very grateful for that. And um, I'm very grateful for your time. I know that you've got lots of things going on. And uh, so I'm appreciative of your time yeah. uh, in doing this. And, you know, I think the last thing that I want to share, and you can feel free to um, just kind of jump in, is, is, you know, toxic masculinity mm-hmm. fuels racism. And I don't mm. think that I, I want to make sure that people understand that these two things aren't unrelated, right. that they are, that they're mutually, they can be mutually exclusive. Right. And so the work that I'm trying to do and the work that we've talked about with white men and things like that, um, it's, I think it's, I think it's kind of speaks double for the men who are really wondering what toxic masculinity means for them, thinking about racism and how toxic masculinity and racism interact in their own lives. Yeah. And so I'd really like to encourage that out there. And, and if you want more tips and more information, I'm going to make sure to include the links to Andre's website in oh, our show that. notes, um, the Instagram, the Twitter. And then on your website, I believe there's a link to sign up for Hope and Hard Pills, correct? Yeah, for sure. Like yeah. once, once you go to the site, just right at the top, it says join the movement. Great. Um, which is not the best greeting for people. Like, hey, do you want to be a part of this thing right away? <laughs> Hi, my name's Andre. You want to join this movie? You want to, you want to join this right now? <laughs> but honestly, there's, to me, just jump in. Get off yeah. the sidelines. Like, that, 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 is, that is the most appropriate invitation right now, is yeah. do you want to join the movement? And I think the answer for everyone needs to be yes, whether it's yeah. not this movement, whether it's the Me Too movement or right. the Church Too movement or the climate change movement, right, the exactly. Save the Amazon movement, right. uh, you know, the ending of police violence and the murdering yeah. of innocent black men, uh, whatever movement you want to <clears throat> join, um, 
just get in there. When we understand that these things are connected, Mm -hmm. then that also adds another layer to it, right? Mm -hmm. Like you jump in where you feel passionate, but I mean, like you mentioned, toxic masculinity and race. Notice that one of these things that all these mass shooters have in common, many of them have in common, is that domestic abuse. They have Mm -hmm. a history of domestic abuse. Also, though, a lot of them are writing manifestos about Mm. killing black people. (laughs) And (laughs) which is not funny, but I laugh at terrible things. It's funny how you said also, because you were like, also, like, (laughs) you know, I mean, like this is something that many of them have in common. And you can get really deep and philosophical with this about, you know, human hierarchy is based on the idea Mm -hmm. that the ideal human coming out of the Enlightenment the ideal human is both male and white, right? right. So, right. so of course, right? These things are connected. Um, and, you know, actually my, my latest one, my latest Hope and Heart Pills entry, you know, that'll go out soon. I mean, if you're listening to this, who knows? But yeah, it goes out Monday. This okay. will be on Monday night. Great. So this will be the one that just passed. But talks about how to be an anti-racist, you have to be an environmentalist. Mm. Because... The black and brown people of the world in Africa and South America and South Asia, they're already experiencing mm-hmm. the future that we're trying to avoid, mm-hmm. hopefully trying to avoid in 10 years. They're extreme weather and flooding and mm-hmm. fires. Africa is burning right now. Yep. You know? And so if, if black lives matter to you, <laughs> mm-hmm. then those black lives in Africa have to matter. And mm-hmm. us burning fossil fuels in the global north at the rate that we're that at the rate that we are doing is affecting those black people and mm-hmm. those black lives. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the black lives domestically right. that are living in poverty and also experiencing the brunt of global warming right now. So these things are very much connected. Yeah. You know, so understanding that oh, and also there's this study that said that a reason why many men are not participating in the climate climate change movement is because of toxic masculinity. They don't want to be perceived right. as gay. As gay, right. <laughs> So, I mean, it's, it's all so connected. It's all woven together. Yeah. Any, any last things? Any last things you want to leave folks with? Yeah, you know, um, obviously my favorite thing to talk about is social progress mm-hmm. and how we can build that together. Mm-hmm. And so the thing that I'm always trying to tell people is that history is not a story that is happening to us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a story that we're writing together. And... I'm really honing in on the fact that I don't think a lot of people understand that we play an active role in the story because many of us think, well, I'm just, I'm just a guy or I'm just, you know, I'm just an ordinary woman or something like that, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. don't think that their decisions actually add up that much. But when we look at history, we always ask the question, where were all the rest of those Germans Mm -hmm. when they were carting Jews off to the gas chamber where were all of the well-intentioned and people of goodwill when slavery was normal mm-hmm. in american society where was the average person Ooh. and where were the masses of average people when that was happening so we understand intuitively that even our decisions not to act writes the story we don't want for future generations to look back on us and ask, where were we? Mm-hmm. Where, where were we? What were we doing when people were saying that if we don't get off of fossil fuels, you know, we're not going to have a livable planet? Where were all the ordinary American people when 
we were talking about the numbers around human trafficking and and the women that are being kidnapped and disappearing <clears throat> in places like South Africa, you know, where were all the ordinary people when all of these migrants were being detained and and deported and separated from their families? We don't want to be those people and we don't have to be. Mm-hmm. Because that's the best news. <laughs> we don't have to be mm-hmm. because we can decide together that we're going to discover in what ways do these injustices depend on our participation and then decide not to do it. Thank you for making the decision to be on the right side of history. Oh, and thank you for leading folks with you in the process. It's my honor to do this work. Yeah. Thanks for uh, having me. All right, friends, thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Whiskey and Rye. And just to say it one more time, so we all are on the same page and so we all can be reminded it doesn't have to be this way. So thank you to my guest, Andre Henry, for all that he was able to share on the show today. Make sure you check out his website and uh, get on his Instagram and uh, all of the good things you can keep up with the work that he is doing. Uh, Speaking of Instagram, you can make sure to follow along with me and the show uh, on both Instagram and Twitter, you can follow the show at Whiskey and Rye Pod. You can follow me personally at Ryan Charles LA. And make sure to hit up the Deep West as well. I want to thank them for doing the music. I uh, want to just say one thing about uh, donating to the show. Andre mentioned in his interview that when you donate to this work, you're not donating to me and uh, going in my pocket. You're donating into circulating a positive conversation about men breaking down toxic masculinity. So every dollar that goes to this show uh, really is uh, compounded exponentially in that the work that it's going to create in that the life that it's going to give to people. So uh, there are ways you can donate in the show notes. You can donate via PayPal or Venmo. Uh, and like I said, that work goes to uh, getting this message out and keeping it going further. So thank you to all uh, for thinking about that and for all who have supported the show. Uh, we will have a special episode next week. No guests, but I'm going to be doing a little expose on masculinity in the media. So I hope you come back for that. We're going to be talking about some cool things and uh, looking forward to sharing my thoughts with you on that. So until that time, I raise my glass to you. Cheers. <laughs>